is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms bloom as far as I'm concerned. But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the Speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Hello and welcome to News from the Trough. It is the news segment on the Decode podcast about what is happening down in Canberra, aka the Trough, the world of federal politics. I'm Wendell Hussey and I have got our crack political journo who is down in Canberra manning the bureau at the moment, Leslie Burley. Zooming in, how are you, Les? Yeah, pretty good, pretty good. Glad the weather's dried up a little bit. Yeah, yeah. been a quiet-ish kind of week, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. There hasn't been too much drama happening down here in Canberra. Um, We will touch on some of the PM's travels a bit later on, but no, there hasn't been too much happening. So maybe next week will be a big week. We'll see. It's all relative, isn't it? Like there has been plenty of stuff going on and that's what we're going to talk about over the next little bit. You mentioned the floods there, what's going on with the price of petrol, elbows glow up as well, we want to touch on. But before we get into that, we'll have our little segments to kick things off. We've got the quote of the week first up, which is from the defamation case between Clive Palmer and WA Premier Mark McGowan. Um, They've been going at it in court over the last little while, and some of the texts have been leaked, which are pretty sensational. These are between the WA Attorney General, Mr Quigley, and the WA Premier Mark McGowan. Now, it was revealed in court documents that Quigley text McGowan saying that he's been awake since 4.15am thinking of ways to beat Fat Clive. He called him a turd also. And then he um, described the legislation that blocked Palmer from entering WA as a poison pill for the fat man. WA Labor Premier Mark McGowan responded with some other colourful language and also said that Clive Palmer is the worst Australian who's not in jail. Pretty full-on text there between the Premier and the Attorney General about the head of the United Australia Party there, Les. Yeah, there's not a lot of subtext. They just get straight to the point, don't they? Yeah, and I guess in that situation, you're not expecting someone to be reading those texts out in court 12 months later, you know what I mean? They're just personal messages. But I guess when you're in that position, you have to be aware that at any point those texts could uh, come out. I'll just say, worst Australian who's not in jail, probably a bit of stretch. I reckon there's people who've done worse things than Clive Palmer who aren't in jail. But we will leave it at that. Now we move on to our clanger of the week, and it is a real, real clanger. It's the new dick logo for the Women's Network, Leslie. Yeah, so the Prime Minister's office has a series of networks that deal with a series of things. And the Women's Network kind of made headlines just in the last 48 hours because of their logo, which basically looks like a giant cock. So it was published within a set of all the other logos, which were kind of like these personalized tube looking things. And the Women's Network logo has a big W on the end of the tube. And well, picture it in your brains. Big W, long tube. You know what it looks like. Yep. If you haven't seen it, it, yeah, it looks like it. Also potentially looks like a pair of breasts as well, some people have said. Representation matters. Yeah, they've they've gone they've gone for it. Um 
lots of theories online about whether it's a deliberate troll or whether it was just a fuck up that nobody picked up and there was some young graphic designer who kind of young male graphic designer obviously who did it without kind of realizing what the implications were and just no one picked it up even though there was probably hundreds of eyeballs that saw it no it's the thing is like it's not even a new logo it's been kicking around for ages it just got picked up Mm. on the twitter circuit and now you know it's made the headlines um just in the last couple days and since then of course all the logos have been removed on the website yeah i'm sure someone will be getting paid a few million dollars to design a new one now that brings us to our final one the rogue unit of the week which is josh frydenberg uh, his office sending their printing to the alp office yeah, it was not good at all. So there's this story going around um, where reportedly a gang of Labor staffers are excitedly gathered around a photocopier while they're watching literally dozens and dozens of images of Josh's face being printed, just spewing out of this printer. But it gets even better than that because there's also documents being printed that included private communications between Frydenberg's office and the Australian Electoral Committee about Mr. Frydenberg's election posters. So the AEC have also expressed um, some concerns that some of the posters might be in breach of AEC law, which has happened to Josh before. So it's a pretty funny story. His office sending all of this printing as well as some juicy gossip to literally the enemy. Mm. Josh isn't of that age, but that's pretty boomer behaviour, sending it to the wrong printer. Absolutely. It actually does remind me of my time down at um, Batuta High. Before uh, IT tech in schools got refined, where you could just get into any computer on the school and get onto any website. And I uh, remember a few kids at school sending about 150 pages worth of pornography to the deputy principal's office. They were subsequently suspended. But I ain't spending any time on it. Now, news poll update about where our politicians and parties are sitting. Got the primary vote with the Liberal National Party, the current government, sitting on 35, ALP are on 41, the Greens are on 8, One Nation on 3, and United Australia Party on 3. So, little slight move to the independents there. But the main one that everyone's talking about is the two-party preferred, i.e. Labor or Liberal, take your pick. ALP are on 55, LNP are on 45. That stayed the same for a couple of months now. Strong lead to Labor. Preferred PM, Morrison is on 42, Albo's on 42. And the other 16% are undecided. So neck and neck there, but clear lead for the Labor Party heading into election in a couple of months, which is an interesting one. And it's the first time that that's happened in over two years as well. Yeah, so a big move there for Mr. Albanese, the leader of the opposition party. And actually, if you haven't had a listen yet, we have done a decode on opinion polls explaining what they're made up of, how they work, etc., etc. So there'll be a link in the show notes if you want to go back and have a listen to that one, or you can just find it on the feed. But I ain't spending any time on it. Now, let's get into some of the bigger issues over the course of the week. Last week, we spoke a lot about the floods and the government's response to those floods. It's been seven days since we last came out and with an episode, but 
obviously a lot has happened since then. So it's worth doing a little bit of a recap to kind of run through uh, what the updated response has been and where we've landed in terms of our response to these things going forward and what people in these disaster zones are being offered. So early last week, Prime Minister Scott Morrison visited Lismore and declared a national disaster emergency as well as $25 million of funding for recovery. And it's actually the first ever national disaster declaration that has happened since the process was recommended in the Royal Commission that happened after the 2019 to 2020 bushfires. And here's what he had to say. We have moved from a major flood event to a natural disaster. That is what has occurred over the course of the last few days. And at this stage, state of emergencies have not been declared at a state level in either New South Wales or to the best of my knowledge in Queensland. And so it will actually be the Commonwealth that will be the first to move on that. So his team stated that he spent the day visiting flood-impacted areas, but the media weren't actually invited on the trip. So some could argue that it was a move Mm. to prevent traumatised people ending up on TV, whereas others would probably argue that it was a move to prevent traumatised people being involuntarily handshaked on TV. Yes, a repeat of the Cabargo situation down there. The, The official line was that, In the aftermath of an event like this, people don't want cameras shoved in their faces. That's what the government said, but um, in the past that always has seemed to be the case. So it was definitely an interesting one leading into the election. There was that side of things, which the media were not very happy about. And then there um, there was the other side of things about questions being asked about why it took so long for the government to declare a national emergency. It had been more than a week. Obviously, the Prime Minister was in isolation with COVID, but uh, people were asking, why wasn't it made immediately after it was apparent how bad these floods had affected the communities? Why did it take so long to declare a national emergency? Yeah, especially considering that the recommendation from this Royal Commission actually says, and this is a quote, a declaration would signal to communities the severity of a disaster early and act as a marshalling call for early provision of Australian government assistance when requested. So the whole idea was that you're meant to call this thing early so that everyone knows, one, Mm. the severity of it all, but two, local, state and federal governments can coordinate rescue and response from the get-go rather than retroactively trying to patch things And then it was leaked to the media that the Prime Minister was going to call this national emergency, but he was going to do it in a press conference up in Lismore after he was allowed out of isolation. But before the Prime Minister could even get to the press conference to announce all of this, a few spicy things kind of happened, didn't they, Liz? Yeah, so the first thing that happened, or I guess didn't happen, was that Scott was actually 90 minutes late to the press conference, which is considerably late. Like, yes, there's a lot going on, so we've got to you know, mm. give him a little bit of leeway there. But while the media waited for him, a local person from the community took the opportunity to jump in front of the cameras and address the nation. So Rich Latimer, who was a local, spoke to the media on behalf of the community and this is what he had to say. For me, it started, it started going down to the emergency centre that our community set up in Mullum and hearing a friend whose child was ill, struggling to get a helicopter. The next thing you know, call a friend who's got a helicopter, get the helicopter and one thing led to another. We need communities to realise that we need to prepare ourselves for this more and more, and we need a lot less resistance between us and the agencies, you know. So that's really what our community wanted to push towards you guys, is that there's a potential here to prepare for this stuff, because communities are going to need to be ready for this again in 5, 10, 15 years. 
So this is actually a really big deal because it's super rare for this to happen. So not only does it reflect the sentiments of the local community and how they're feeling, but I suspect that it potentially reflects some of the sentiments of the media as well because they gave him the airtime and the space to say Mm. what he wanted to say in front of them. Yeah, they just let him roll. Then Morrison did arrive. There was probably 100 or so protesters out the front calling for action on climate change and calling on the government to do better. But Morrison, he went into the building where he was giving the press conference. He went in through the back door, didn't talk to the protesters or greet the protesters. Yeah, and then he gave his press conference there before once again peeling off out the back without talking to the protesters and getting out of Lismore pretty quick smart. Yeah, and then things got worse over the next day or so. And then after all of this jargon from Scott Morrison about getting the response right and waiting for the correct timing and waiting for the premiers to ask for help that morning, his 2IC and Deputy Prime Minister Barnaby Joyce, during an interview with Lee Sales and 7.30, kind of threw him under the bus. I grant that if people say, well, it should have happened last week, well, uh, if we made that mistake, we made that mistake, and we're sorry for it. Which was an interesting take. Barnaby, that whole interview just seemed like he didn't want to be there. It's, it's funny. For a guy who kind of loses the leadership of the National Party and then gets it again, he just seems so just frustrated with having to front up and answer questions and talk about these things as the Deputy Prime Minister of Australia. But anyway, things got a, a little bit worse uh, for the Prime Minister there. With the Premier of Queensland, she had her own press conference, Anastasia Palaszczuk, and she actually turned down the offer of a national emergency for southeast Queensland, saying that the declaration was actually just too little too late. The time for uh, that national emergency was probably... A week ago. Yeah, and basically what she was saying was that she didn't need the PM to declare a national emergency as the state had already done so a fortnight ago and was pretty much well into clean-up mode. Morrison then fought back, saying that the Queensland Premier had every opportunity to write to him and ask for an emergency declaration a week ago, but she didn't choose to do that. Spokesperson from the Premier's office then responded, saying that the Premier doesn't need to write to the PM for him to declare a national emergency, pointing out that the legislation requires the Prime Minister and the Commonwealth to do so, so she had no hand in the decision-making. One thing from an outsider's point of view that just seems really frustrating is this idea that they need to write to each other and then using the excuse that you need to write to each other. It's like people are sitting on roofs as floodwaters rise trying to uh, save their lives and trying to get out of this situation why are we needing to do these formalities of writing to it if we need to do that just get one of the staffers write the letter fax it off bang i'm sure within an hour we could have this whole situation sorted out if we wanted to yeah in the year of our lord 2022 when we literally have satellite phones and the internet like we just need to be better at responding to these things more quickly. And it's been interesting Mm. to see that certain local governments have been responding quickly as well. Like, you know, if they have the capacity to have these conversations really quickly, then why can't the almighty powerful federal government have the capacity as well? So people are very frustrated. Yeah, it does very much seem like excuse making. And obviously there's also... The fact that the Prime Minister was in isolation with COVID in the House for a week, totally fair. He was sick, understand that. But, um, you know, there are other people who can step up to the plate. And also, you know, given what everyone else has gone through for the last couple of years, I'm sure it wouldn't be that hard for him to just make that national uh, emergency declaration. He didn't need to fly up to Lismore and front the people to make that declaration. He could have done that after he made the declaration a few days earlier. Yeah, it was an interesting one. 
And what does Labor had to say about all of this, Les? Because Anthony Albanese seemed to be pretty quiet. Um, he wasn't calling for a national emergency before one was actually announced. Yeah, he's kind of after the fact spoken about it and said that it needed to happen more quickly. But again, kind of leading up to it, they didn't challenge it too much until it happened. But Federal Labor Shadow Minister for Natural Disasters, Murray Watt, touched on all of this saying... I do have to wonder why it is that he has waited so long before he actually declared this national emergency. He has had the power to do this at any point over the last week. So not only has he criticized Scott Morrison and his slow response, he's also kind of flagged that this is going to be a key conversation that Labor is going to take into the next election. So it's interesting to see Mm. how we've come full circle from the beginning of Scott Morrison's prime ministership and the bushfires to the end of his current term and the floods. And I'm sure the Greens will have plenty to say on this as well, linking natural disasters to climate policy or lack thereof. And Labor has Mm. actually in the last couple of days come out to say that it will consider establishing what they're calling a civilian natural disaster agency rather than use the defense force almost solely and the volunteer SES to respond to floods and bushfires. So kind of like FEMA in the US. So they're kind of playing this idea that they might take to the election. You know, what does it look like if we actually have Mm. a federal agency that can coordinate these things. FEMA in the US is the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which has, I think, 10,000 plus employees who are basically on standby to help out in terms of wildfires, landslides, floods, all that sort of stuff. So we'll have to wait and see if it does become very much a thing. I mean, it kind of feels like we hadn't really spoken about this stuff since the bushfires, and there's a chance that we won't speak about this stuff until there's the natural disaster of 2023, and we're going, why haven't we learn our lessons and why haven't these things been fixed but we'll see if someone can champion this leading into the election but i ain't spending any time on it now one of the other big issues this week leslie has been the soaring soaring price of petrol as anybody who has been to a servo would know the price of petrol has gone through the fucking roof Yeah, so prices of $2 per litre are pretty common around the country at the moment. And there's Mm. even prices of up to $3 per litre in remote places, including Arnhem Land, which means that not only is everyone feeling the burden, but there are people who are disproportionately feeling the burden of this as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Nothing like uh, monopolies out in regional Australia to gouge regional Australians. Now, there are a few things at play here. The government is blaming the invasion of Ukraine, saying that petrol prices have gone from $1.70 to well over $2 a litre because Russia, who provides the world with a lot of oil, has been cut off as a result of these economic sanctions. Yeah, I think it's 10% of the world's oil. Yeah. And Scott Morrison actually said that the Australian people understand that the war in Ukraine is to blame for these rising prices. The Australian Competition and Consumer Commission also came out and said that there's two other elements to it, one of them being that there's just now heaps more people on the road, in the air, on the sea because of the recovery from the pandemic and also because the supply isn't meeting the demand from oil producers in the Middle East who basically refuse to increase production and soften prices. Now, everyone is getting hit with the price of petrol. It's going to flow on to food, all these sorts of things going forward. So people are asking, what's the government going to do, right? price of petrol has gone up. What is the federal government going to do about this issue, which is affecting so many Australians? One of the big things has been calls to cut the fuel excise. 
which is a flat tax levied on petrol and diesel bought at the Bowser, and it's currently set at 44.2 cents per litre. Now, people are saying, okay, wow, 44.2 cents per litre, that's what the government is is getting uh, from every litre of petrol sold. Well, we should be cutting that and reducing that in order to lower the cost of petrol. Yes, there's a couple of politicians who have come out to speak about this as well. So Queensland Liberal National Senator Susan McDonald said that the government has to do something and the fuel excise is the bluntest instrument available. But like you said, you know, there's kind of long-term repercussions. Mm. And South Australian Liberal Premier Stephen Marshall has also asked the federal government to reduce the excise in the next budget. He's facing an election in a few days, so it's potentially a populist move on his behalf mm. to kind of say something like this in the run-up to an election. Yeah. But still, even the fact that, the you know, the Liberal Party, people from the Liberal Party are saying this is pretty interesting considering, you know, the Liberal Party's take on these things a lot of the time. Yeah. Yeah, and it's an interesting one from the SA Premier Stephen Marshall there because he's not offering to get rid of the GST on petrol, which is a 10%, um, the goods and services tax, which is 10% at every dollar, which is accumulated by the government, but then it's given back to the state. So it's an interesting one. He's not offering to get rid of that, just the fuel excise. And yeah, there are two arguments to this that it's actually not going to have that much of an effect. It's really, it might reduce the price of petrol a little bit, but price of oil is going to continue to go up and if it continues to go up the price of petrol is going to go up so there's not going to be a drastic reduction in the actual price of petrol and the long-term effect is just going to be so detrimental to the nation that it's not worth doing because once you get rid of this excise it's got to be tacked on at some point and it's never going to be welcomed in the future no one's ever going to say put the price of petrol back up and when is petrol ever going to go down to a low enough price that people are happy for them to do that. So, yeah, it's an interesting one that the government's faced by. And, and the calls for the government to do something, it's kind of a tricky one because that's just the nature of these things. That's the price of petrol right now. It's an international market. Yeah. Only 10% of our oil is refined here in Australia. So we're reliant on international markets to bring this oil in. I don't know. So short of going and invading another country in the Middle East and ensuring we have cheaper oil, I don't really think there's a whole lot the government can do about this. Yeah, makes me wonder if there's an avenue to talk about renewable energies and cars in this upcoming election. Oh, yeah, because there's like there's electric vehicles and that sort of stuff that's pretty handy. And yeah, that's an interesting one. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah, um, maybe maybe renewable energies and um, kind of transitioning away from oil. Maybe that that's a good idea. That's definitely something we should think about there, Les. Um, now, yeah. our final... Just, just a thought I had right now. That's a, that is good. <laughs> uh, we should look into that. But I ain't spending any time on it. Now, our final uh, little bit of news we wanted to touch on over the last seven days has been the Albo 60 Minutes appearance. Scott Morrison was on uh, 60 Minutes a few weeks ago. We had the ukulele. We had Jenny saying some things about Grace Tame. Uh, we had all sorts of stuff in that 60 Minutes interview. Albo's got his right of reply, uh, sat down with Carl Stefanovic and... It was pretty mushy, really, wasn't it? Yeah, it was actually like a pretty friendly conversation Mm. between the two of them. It was a lot less confrontational, but it also felt less kind of playing house, I suppose. You know, like Albo did do a bit of a tour around some of his local hotspots. We met a couple of his mates, but they basically kind of just jumped straight into this one-on-one interview in the studio. Yeah, yeah, and he was pretty uh, adamant about just 
being a safe pair of hands. You know what I mean? Like Carl asked him, why does the Labor Party stuff it up so often? And Albo said, we're the party of big ideas. We can be impatient about changing the world quickly. But, you know, many good things we did were dismantled. So we need long-term government. And that's kind of what he was trying to do. He was just trying to play it safe, not go too hard. Yeah, and I think the hardest thing that he probably did say, the toughest thing he said, was uh, critiquing Scott Morrison about his ukulele playing. Mm. He said that it was a sight that couldn't be unseen. Yeah. And he did throw a, a little bit of shade at Scott Morrison, saying that he believes that the voters are probably a bit more cynical this time around at an election, that they don't trust him anymore because of the photo ops that have come out, the fact that he supposedly lies a lot, according to Albanese. Mm. So there was a little bit of shade there. But yeah. otherwise, like he said... It was a pretty gentle interview. Yeah, it was. Um, He did address the glow up, though, uh, said he's lost 18 Mm -hmm. kilos. He attributed that to wanting to be match fit um, for this election and also to the car crash that he said he nearly died in last year, um, said it brought on a health kick. So, you know, everyone has noticed he has been looking pretty good, which is interesting because, you know, a lot of people leading into these things, it's the opposite of a glow up. It's very much a glow down. But for him, he's glowed up. He's looking fit. He's looking healthy. So it was interesting to hear him address that. It was also on that same note, nice to hear him be vulnerable. Like, Mm. I think it's quite rare for us to hear Men in general, not even just leaders, talk about divorces. And he actually admitted that his divorce that he had about three years ago, that he didn't want it to happen. He didn't see it coming. He was very shocked and upset. And, you know, to see someone kind of just admit that publicly is a very kind of strategic move on his behalf to be like, look, Mm. like I'm a real person and I feel feelings and I've gone through some pretty rough stuff and he has a history of this you know he always talks about his rough upbringing Mm. and his mum so I think he's trying to position himself against Scott Morrison which as we know has been critiqued a lot for his lack of empathy like this is someone that feels his feelings deeply Mm, that's a good point yeah it was interesting to see him vulnerable and obviously you know he wants to be prime minister. He's got a whole team behind him. There's obviously strategy there. Exactly. But it was it was nice to see someone in that position just go, yeah, I didn't want that relationship to end. And as you said, be vulnerable and, and just be open. It, it felt like he was being open about it. And he was also open about the fact that um, he's not trying to emulate Bob Hawke in terms of his off-field antics, if that makes sense. He wants mm. to be a you know a mm-hmm. safe prime minister like Hawke, but he said, oh, I've never had a cigarette um, in my life, and he doesn't share a lot of those vices with Hawke. So it was interesting to see him kind of – he's leaned into the relatable bloke stuff, but he's not gone into the you know beer-loving, ciggy-loving, that kind of guy. So, yeah, it was – pretty well played like you I feel like it was pretty well played from Albo and the final takeaway is definitely that Albanese suspects that the 14th of May will be the election day the day that we hit the booths in about nine weeks time yeah so that would be a couple of months away Um, you'd imagine he's got a pretty firm idea of when it will be so um, yeah that was that was one of the big takeaways out of that that We will be voting potentially on the 14th of May, so not long now. No, the deadline for the election is the 21st, so one Mm. week later, so I would not be surprised that, you know, you give yourself a week's buffer time just in case. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't look like you're leaving it to the last minute, which they clearly, they want to leave it as long as possible, the government right now, so um, it makes sense to, you just move it back one weekend before, so it doesn't look like you are leaving it to the last minute, you're ready to go, that's the right time for the nation. So, we'll have to see if Albo was right about that prediction, but it'll give us... 
A fair few more additions of the news from the trough as the election cycle keeps heating up and the news just keeps on chugging and chugging and chugging. So we hope you enjoyed this week's wrap-up of what's been going on in the trough and around the trough. And we'll be back again in seven days' time to dissect it all again. Until then, I'm Wendell Hussey. And I'm Les Burley. Go well. <laughs>